Welcome to Lakeside Church's Message Podcast. Our prayer is that you fall in love with Jesus, find your church family, live in freedom, and be active in your purpose. Let's join the message already in progress. Chris had mentioned from a few weeks ago um, that one of the things I said um, had kind of impacted people in regards to um, Adam and Eve and the being clothed by like the flesh of the animal. Um, and then he basically asked me something like, uh, like, did you plan that? Or, or did you just kind of, did that kind of come out? Um, and the truth is, what I've found over the years, um, and this is not without irony, <laughs> um, some of the most impactful things I say are spur of the moment things that come into my head while I want to just, it's just, you need to say this. Um, I say it's ironic because in some ways I am a big believer in theology. I'm a big believer in expositing the word, understanding it, putting it in its proper place. And I think that that's God honoring. Um, and I think God has something for his people. And I don't always know exactly what that thing's going to be. So maybe what I'm about to say will tie into the rest of what I say, and maybe it won't. We'll see. God does that too. But I'm having, I'm having, I've had this, this thought, and I, I, you know, I spent a good bit of time last night looking and studying um, the notion that a person who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is not going to remain the way they are. They will be transformed. Not might be, not should be, will be. That the work of the Spirit, but truly in Christ, truly been made alive, truly John 3, been born again, will invariably change. Not be perfect in this lifetime, but change. And that is an unavoidable reality of the new life that has been given to you in Christ. And so in thinking about that, it tied into a feeling I've had for the better part of my life. And on some level, you might call that feeling a fear. It scares me to some extent looking at the landscape of Christendom, looking at the landscape of the Christian church in the West, looking at the landscape of what Christians say. It scares me sometimes the way in which it seems we don't take God as seriously as we ought to. God is a God of grace, God is a God of mercy, but let us never forget that God is absolutely, undeniably, wrath-filled towards sin, unrighteousness, and those who suppress the word of God in that unrighteousness. You are in one or the other camp. You are either under the grace of Christ, being transformed by the work of the Spirit, and your end is glory. Or you will spend eternity under the wrath of God. And that is as terrible as anything you can imagine. It is that bad. And it must be that bad. It is and if we don't see how bad that news is, then in Adam we have all fallen. 
that apart from Christ, we are all under the wrath of God. If we do not see how bad and terrifying and richness of what Christ accomplished upon the tree. He bore that wrath for me. And we cheapen that when we play it off like, nah, God's not really that upset with you. It's okay. He doesn't really care how we behave. You know, whatever. He doesn't really care how we think. Whatever. We cheapen that. And the fact that we cheapen that terrifies me. Genuinely terrifies me. There's a line um, that I want to read you guys, and then I'll move on to Thanksgiving. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The guy that wrote this hymn, by the way, if you don't know, was a slave trader. Um, He spent his life as a trader of slaves, driving a a boat um, and transporting um, slaves. And then, uh, in later life, he went blind, like couldn't see anymore, and became a Christian. And in the becoming of a Christian, up until this point, amazing grace, totally repenting from the evil life he had lived up until this point, seeing things in a totally new light that's called repentance, right? And living the rest of his life as a physically blind Christian who, in his words, could now see. So, amazing grace, grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, which is all of our spiritual state apart from Christ. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And here's the line that's less read. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It was grace that taught my heart to fear. We don't think that, like, what, what? And yet, that's exactly right. The fear of God is the beginning of, of wisdom. The recognition that I declared war to wretch, that I have really transgressed the law of God, that I have really declared war on the Almighty, that I have sought in life satisfaction and joy in things that in many cases are not only not God, but are contrary to what God has made me to know and to be. C.S. Lewis basically says that we're not, we're not ignorant people that must be taught the truth. We're rebels that must lay down our arms. Adam declared war on God, and we have followed suit. And so, apart from him, we are blind wretches. And so, it was grace that taught him to see that. That, oh my gosh, I'm in war with God. And that's terrifying. So it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Paul Paul says that the kindness of God is intended to bring us to repentance. And he warns us that if we ignore that, And do not repent. We are storing up for ourselves wrath on the day of judgment. This is in your Bible. It is all over your Bible. And one of the things that scares me is how how carefully do we read that? 
How seriously do we take that? If it sounds like I'm preaching at you, I'm not. This is every bit for me as well. If that makes you feel uncomfortable or a bit scared or like, oh my God, I say this. Maybe, maybe you do. Maybe by the grace of God, you are compelled through fear to go and deal with God. But I have been there. Oh, I've been there. I have wrestled with the text of Scripture. I've wrestled with the idea of the wrath of God. And it has taught me something of the sweetness of the grace of Christ. And so I'm going to talk about Thanksgiving. We got a lot. Oh my gosh, we have a lot to be thankful for. So, Lord, I, I know when I pray. I know that nothing I say, nothing I do will have any effect unless you do it. Um, you might give me the opportunity to plant or the opportunity to water, but without you there is no increase. And so, Lord, I pray today that hearts and minds would be transformed. I pray, Lord, that whatever people need to feel, whatever they need to think, whatever needs to happen to draw people to yourself, that it would happen. Lord, I desire that every man, woman, and child in this room would be saved and would walk in unimaginable freedom. And I pray that everyone that's watching online, I desire that everyone that's watching online would be saved and would walk in unimaginable freedom. But Lord, I pray that we find satisfaction in you. We pray these things for your glory and your name. Amen. All right. So, Thanksgiving. I actually changed my sermon last night. I had um, planned to do John 3. And then I started listening to, inevitably, I started listening to podcasts that had come out the week prior. And I was like, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. I was like, man, some good stuff. I think I got to talk about Thanksgiving. I was like, no, nah, God, I don't want to talk about Thanksgiving. You know, I've already kind of done the thing on John 3. And I kept feeling like, no, nah, you know, Thanksgiving. I'm like, all right. So we kind of just talked about it. No, Thanksgiving. I'm like, okay. I want to start with a quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says this, when we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Right? Like when we're little kids, it's like our parents um, filled our stockings and we were grateful to them. Thank you, Mommy and Daddy, for filling our stockings. And, but he asked this question in typical G.K. Chesterton fashion. If you've never read him, he's, for lack of a better word, funny. Um, he goes, Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? Right? The implication, and he's going to point to this, is if I can be thankful to my parents for giving me good gifts. Isn't, isn't it logical to also be thankful outward to somebody else for giving me the gift of life? Everyone who walked in here this morning has been blessed by God with the ability to walk in here this morning. Everybody. And so what he's getting at is how ought we view the good things in our life in regards to the God who gave us those good things. And so Paul writes um, in Romans 1, 18 through 21, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's revealed from heaven against all, not some, but all, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if you were going to begin to really probe deep into the Scripture, 
Maybe sometimes we'll do this. What is ungodliness and unrighteousness as the Bible defines it? But dig into that. What way is it revealed from heaven? In any case, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, what can be known about God is plain to them, namely these men who suppress the truth, namely these men who um, practice ungodliness and unrighteousness. And in that unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So these, these men. For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How, how has he shown it to them? How has God shown the sinful mankind? How has he shown them known about God? How has he shown that to them? For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power, divine nature. Man, what does that mean? Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is an idea that I have been... Obsessed is the wrong word, but very interested in and very perplexed by for a long time. Paul is saying, and he's not the only one who's going to say it. Jesus actually says it in John 3, right after John 3.16. But here's the idea. The idea is that there is a relationship between our moral state and how we think. So... If we say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I don't think he's there, Paul says that's not a thing. You're a liar. You know he's there, you don't want to see him. You don't want to give him thanks, but you know he's there. Is that not what this says? I get that wrong? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So then here's the question. Why don't they see him? Why don't they perceive that they know God? And here's the answer. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay. It's a lot of stuff, but here's what I want to camp out on. Undertone, right? Although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What would it look like and to give thanks to him? Honor him as God. Now, particularly what I want to focus on is that Thanksgiving idea. So to quote Chesterton again, he writes, When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. He thinks that's the critical thing. And... In reading some theologians or listening to some theological quotes and, and, and pastors this last week, I noticed that that was kind of a common theme among some of these guys. They see thanksgiving as almost the quintessential role of, of the human being. It's a major role of 
the human being within the, from the vantage point of uh, a Christian anthropology, a Christian understanding of man. And it seems like that's what Paul's saying. Give him thanks. Something about our nature is made to give thanks to God. To recognize Him, to see Him, and to give thanks to Him. Something about us is toward that end and for that purpose. So I want to give you four principles of thanksgiving. One, thanksgiving worships God as the source of that for which we are thankful. Right? So to put aside for just a second being thankful to God because of our relationship to him. In other words, putting aside for a second, being thankful for God himself, which is the most important thing. I want us also to recognize that all the things in life that we call good things and all the things in life that are genuinely good things are things that are ultimately given by God. There is no good thing you love. There is no good thing you like. There is no good thing you enjoy that is not ultimately from God. Now, sin takes a good thing and corrupts it by pursuing it in an improper way. But the good thing, all of them are from God. Everything in your life that's good is from God. It's a gift. It's in your stocking. And we take stock of that tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. All of them. He is then ultimately the one whom we should see as the source of all good. We strive often in our sinful and stupid state to grasp hold of things that are contrary to the will of God. But in so doing, we're really doing something irrational. We're going after things that are ultimately not good for us. They're not going to bring us joy. They're not going to lead bring us satisfaction. They can't. Because God is the source of all good gifts. You see this. And God being the source of all good gifts, if you consider what that means, the implication of that, that means that God is the ultimate goodness in whom we will ultimately find satisfaction. Y'all see this? Does this make sense? Which means that those who have God have everything and those who don't have God have nothing. Hell is not a place we go and we party. Hell is not a place with pool tables and motorcycle gangs and, you know, smoking in the boys' room. (laughs) Right? It's not what it is. It's lame. It's boring. It sucks. Right? And it's terrible. Why? Because all good gifts come from God. All good things come from God. God is the source of all good things. The thing you crave in life, the thing you desire more than God, the thing you desire other than God, the thing you want to do rather than the thing you know God's called you to do, is just a lie. It's a mirage that's being pushed by Satan in your flesh that will not satisfy you. It won't. If we're honest with ourselves, it barely satisfies us in the moment. I mean, if we're honest. In other words, it's a testimony of our recognition that God is ultimately, whether in the moment or not we fully accepted this truth, but ultimately what we need. But principle two, thanksgiving recognizes our own creaturely dependence upon God. It it humbles us. Um, Some Christians have made the argument that pride is the root of all sins, and so it follows in my thinking that if pride is, in some sense, at the bottom of all sin, humility 
is the opposite of that. Fair enough? So Thanksgiving recognizes our own creaturely dependence upon God. It, it humbles us. makes us less self-righteous. I look at... Um, everybody told me that as soon as I had a kid, I'd start bringing him into, a, into, a, into preaching analogies. So, you know, I look at my son. My son wakes us up. God bless him. Every night couple times a night and my saintly wife who is way more sanctified than me is way more quick to get out of bed and run over there with a bottle um, and yet it occurs to me that when little Calvin cries in his little bed for a bottle he is not going to get it himself he can't get it himself he has absolutely no ability to get that bottle himself and he recognizes, whether consciously at this point or not, he recognizes in the cry itself that the person who can bring him a bottle is, in all likelihood, my lovely and wonderful wife. In other words, he trusts his parents to provide for him. He does not think in any way, shape, or form that he earned that bottle. And Thanksgiving does this. When we thank God for the job we have, when we thank God for the family we have, when we thank God for, I don't know, our children are turning out well or better than they could be. Or, you know, when we thank God for these things, what we're saying is, I recognize at the end of the day, God, that you are good and you are the source of these good things and I am not. It humbles you. And something about that, again, makes grace so much more sweet. Recognize that you're a wretch without him. Recognize you're really bad without him. You is so much more than you deserve. That's how much he loves you. So Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Probably this guy. Definitely this guy. I'm up there at least, right? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, this is Jesus, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The apostles' thinking was, we did good stuff. We followed you, we gave up our lives for you, we're walking with you, we're risking persecution for you. We have did a bunch of really awesome, good stuff. We're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus goes, if you don't become like a child, you're not even in. Which, I think, hints to new birth. John 3. But I think also gives us this fact. Children come to their parents knowing they can provide nothing. They need their parents' provision. We must approach God like that. For you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourself. It's a free gift of God. It's not the result of works. No man can boast. The reason no man can boast is because no man did anything. Nothing. Um, some people say it's Edwards. I can't prove that it's Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, but uh, he said the only thing I contributed to myself. If you believe that, by the way, that'll set you free. It'll fill your heart with a love for him that 
Man, it's just not going to be there if you think you did most of it. If you think you were not that bad. If you see that, oh man. Jesus says those are forgiven much, love much. Those are forgiven little, love little. And the issue is not that some of us were actually forgiven little. The issue is that some of us think we were. Some of us struggle to be thankful because we want to believe that everything we have we deserve and we have earned. That's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's at least not what James says. Thanksgiving is spiritual warfare against the idolatry of discontentment. There is a natural aspect to our fallen state where we continue to crave more and more but are never satisfied. My man Ken did Ecclesiastes, I think, I don't know, a few months back. It's been a year. Um, that's really what Ecclesiastes is about. It's about striving for things in this life that will never satisfy you. It's, it's, it's life underneath the sun. That's the caveat in, in Ecclesiastes. Is this is the state of life underneath the sun. The state of man without God. That's the way to think about it. It's kind of the key to the book, I think. So Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth in its income. This also is vanity. The hevel, hevelim, is like, the word hevel means like breath. It's similar to the word for able um, in, the, in the book of Genesis. He was a breath. He was there for a very brief moment, and then he was gone. And so... That's what he said of that breath is folly because it just, it's gone. That's what he says the chasing of wealth is like. You're never satisfied. You never get it. You grab a hold of it for a second and then it's gone. It's off to the races. You have to get more. And Jesus is going to say later, as well as the rest of Scripture in reality, that you die, none of it's going with you. In other words, he is the only thing that is not ultimately vanity and folly. Right? What does a profit a man to what? Gain the whole world, lose his soul, life. That's the idea. But I wonder if we, in our day-to-day lives, believe that. Me too. Ecclesiastes says something similar in 118. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I'm going to tell you guys that's true. I know that one's true. Money I've never had that much of, but I've spent a lot of time trying to understand things. And as soon as you solve certain dilemmas, you have 12 more. And if by some miracle you solve all 12 of those, each one of those produces 12 more. That's the hydra, right? Cut off one head, you get 10 more. That's, that's a true thing. In 114 as well, we see, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. So he's saying all things are like this ultimately. If those things are not done, let's call it in proper relationship with God. Right? Because if we see gifts from God as gifts from God, and we worship the giver rather than the gift, we can enjoy the gifts for what they are. Finite and temporal gifts from God. But if we seek those gifts to the exclusion of God, they become for us unsatisfying because we have placed a kind of weight on them they cannot bear. And husbands, this includes your wife. And wives, this includes your children. 
if you place on them the weight that can only be sustained by the living God and satisfier of your soul, you will crush them and you will be deeply disappointed, which, by the way, will crush them more. Thanksgiving, as we mentioned, orients us towards God as the source of our satisfaction. And I'm repeating myself. And allows us to enjoy the good things he gives us without putting them upon them the weight of an ultimate satisfaction. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 10-13, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now... Chris quoted Paul this morning. I'm not going to be able to quote it. It was like, that's fire, man. I love that. It's just so good. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, we've read this so many times, guys, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Man, that's hard. Man, that's hard. On the day they take me out to burn me on the pyre, for failing to denounce Christ, I am to be content. On the day they take away everything I own and go and put me in a camp, I am to be content. How is that? I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strength. Come your treasure supersedes everything else. And the things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and right? That. I think it's why first John basically says, I do not love the things of this world. It's like, yes, that. He's worth it, man. He's the pearl of great price. He's the, 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 the treasure buried in the field, right? Like, so everything, that. He is everything. He's not the means by which I get everything. He is everything. There is nothing I own I would not trade for her and my child. Nothing. Nothing. You know, my house, my cars, all my possessions, all my money, and the clothes I'm wearing. Nothing. How much more should I love God? Nothing is more valuable than Him. Which, as an aside, is what Jesus means when He says, if you do not hate your father and mother, right? That's what He means. This is my last point. A few weeks ago, I talked about the woman at the well. Um, I think this is a similar, a similar truth is found here. The things of earth will never satisfy, not ultimately. Only God will do that. You know, go and get your husband. And being thankful to God for all that he does makes us realize the goodness of God and his grace towards us. The deep truth that ultimately he is what we need. It orients us. And I don't do it very well at all. I really don't. But man, we need to take time, especially this season, we need to take time to thank God, write a list of all the things He's done for us. And we can, you can list temporal things, and you can list family, and you can list material possessions, but man, part of that list has got to be 
Christ. Part of that list has got to be that he could have left you in your sinful lost state and didn't. I think part of that list has got to be that of all of the Christians who've walked the life without access to God bless us, his word, did not have it. It was not in their language. They were deprived access of it at many points on our phone. Oh, that is so, so much of a blessing. But do we treat it like one? And so four, thanksgiving in all things teaches us to trust God in hard times. James writes, one, two, through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, that group, okay, for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purposes, and Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you're going through a hard time in life, that's not an indication of the lack of faithfulness. Not necessarily. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. This means being persecuted for his sake that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Here, here's the final point I'll make. Thanksgiving, even in the midst of hard times, recognizes that God can use the hard things in your life to produce, ultimately, something much better. Even suffering can be, in a real way, grace. That's hard, but it helps. If I go to the doctor tomorrow and get diagnosed with cancer, I'm going to be upset. I might be mad. I might go, come on, God, really? I might be sad, I'd be afraid. And this thought would come into my head. This, too, will ultimately serve to make you more like Jesus Christ, for your good and for his glory. And that thought, if I really believe it, and I do, I don't, I don't want to fall off one side of the bridge or the other. I, I, I don't want to talk about wrath and justice to the exclusion of grace, but I also do not want to cheapen the cross and your call by failing to talk about the need for repentance and a transformed life. I don't want anyone here today to hear me say that they are saved or justified by their works, but I also don't want anyone here today to hear me say that a saved person can remain unchanged. Lord, I pray that you would, in our hearts today, fuel 
a love for you, and a spirit of thankfulness for everything that you've done for us, Lord. And I pray that people would take the time, would really take the time, be intentional to take the time to sit down, write out, speak out thanksgiving to you. And I pray that they would find in that moment the joy that comes from recognizing that you are God and you are there and you, you are good and you have provided for us. And if you are for us, no one can be against us. And if you have saved us, you are our everlasting treasure. Even in the hardships of life, though they come, you are still there. And even that can be worked together, will be worked together for our good if we know and we love you. So I pray your grace and your peace upon those who need that. Anxiety and a drive in those who may not know you or may not have dealt with you who need to do so. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey guys, I'm Bob. <laughs> <laughs>